In today's episode of Trek in Time, we're going to be talking about coming up with a plan that makes no sense given the limited scope of what you're trying to achieve. That's right. We're talking about Enterprise, episode 11 of season three, Carpenter Street, a title that I don't understand. This episode dropped on November 26th, 2003, and I think I may have let the cat out of the bag. I didn't care for this episode. <laughs> Trek in time where we're watching every episode of Star Trek in chronological order and in history. So what we're doing is we're going back to the first stories of the Star Trek universe. That means we're watching Enterprise. And as we go about watching these episodes, we're also going to be talking about what the world was like at the time of original broadcast. So we're talking about right now, 2003. And who are we? Well, I'm Sean Farrell. I'm a writer. I write some sci-fi. I write some stuff for kids. And with me is my brother, Matt. And Matt is the guru and inquisitor behind the YouTube channel, Undecided with Matt Farrell, which takes a look at emerging tech and its impact in our lives. And Matt, how are you doing today? Doing pretty well. How about you? How's the weekend? Well, so far, so good. It's I'm hoping to have a quiet. We're recording this on a Sunday. I'm hoping to have a quiet Sunday afternoon so I can prepare for the coming week, which I'm not looking forward to just because of it being a work week. I, that's all I have to complain about. <laughs> How about yourself? Same, same thing. It's like I've been trying to relax and have a quiet weekend in preparation of a lot of work that I have planned for this week. Yes. And as usual, we like to start off our episodes by taking a look back at previous episodes. Matt, did you have any comments from previous episodes you wanted to share? Sure. On our last episode that we released, it was the out of time episode. That's kind of our extra subscriber only podcast. And if you want to get access to that, we release maybe one or two a month of those. You have to go to trekintime.show and sign up to become a member. But we released one last week and we talked about movies like Prey and the TV show Sandman. And there were some, com there was a bunch of comments about people liking Sandman. Mm -hmm. So it was from Film Gabe. Hey, Matt and Sean, I agreed with Sean about Sandman. It's amazing. Currently, I'm on episode eight and looking forward to seeing how it goes. So far, I have not seen Night Sky, but we'll check it out. And there were more comments just like that one about, mm -hmm. about Sandman being kind of a, a home run for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. The other comment that came up was about the movie Prey, which is the Predator movie about Comanche Indians versus a Predator. And Emmanuel wrote, so they did film Prey and Comanche as well. You can select that option. And then he also said, Sandman's amazing. Mm -hmm. But I do want to qualify what he said about they did film in Comanche. It's a dub. They didn't actually film it in Comanche. They mm. dubbed it in Comanche, which is kind of- the option to actually select it as the yeah. language. Okay. But yeah, but if you want to watch it on Hulu, you it's a separate movie. You have to do a separate search for Hulu, uh, on Hulu for Prey, Comanche, and you'll find the dub that you can watch. Interesting. Uh, yeah. And there were a couple comments from the last episode of Trek in Time- which was the episode Similitude, which was the clone of Trip that they made. AJ Chan wrote, Similitude was one of the best moral plays in Enterprise. It's one of those cases where you could understand the rationale for both sides of the argument. It's not perfect, but it also didn't end a shootout or some bad guy trying to steal Enterprise. Yes. Uh, I, I like that. I, I agree with him completely. And then Lambert Rodney made a comment that I hadn't considered um, he said, I like, he liked my suggestion about the show, about the new trip replacing the original trip potentially. Mm -hmm. And he said in the new dynamics that it would create with crew relationships. However, the episode would have been seen as a clone of a Voyager episode in which there was a different Harry that returned to the ship. 
Yeah. And I had completely forgotten about that. And then it made me remember, oh yeah, there was also the next generation Riker where there was the transporter accident right. and a second Riker shows up, but that, that didn't replace the existing Riker. There were just now two Rikers. Two Rikers. So, <laughs> one of whom yeah. started going by Tom. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All very, very, very good feedback. And as usual, we encourage people to jump into the comments on YouTube, or you can reach out through the contact information, which is in the podcast description. All of your feedback is a huge part of what drives these conversations. And we look forward to seeing what you think, not only about what we're doing, but about the shows themselves. And in the background, you're probably hearing that klaxon is actually the read alert, which means, yes, it's that time again, everybody. Time for Matt to buckle up, (laughs) to man up, and to read the Wikipedia description of today's episode of Trek in Time. it's long strap yourself in carpenter street is the 63rd episode of the american science fiction television series star trek enterprise the 11th episode of season three it first aired on november 22nd 2003 on the upn network in the united states the episode was written by executive producers rick berman and brandon braga and directed by mike vajar in the 22nd century the series follows the adventures of the first starfleet starship enterprise registration nx01 Never going to forget that. Season three of the series shows the ship enter the Delphic Expanse to search for a Zindi super weapon in response to an attack on the Earth. Why are we talking about this here? In this episode, Captain Jonathan Archer, Scott Bakula, and Subcommander T'Pol, Jolene Blaylock, travel back to early 21st century Earth to find a group of Zindi reptilians who were seeking to wipe out the human race by using a biological agent. Why was this not just the last sentence? Mm. <laughs> That's all it was. I think strangely, as rambling as these are, and they're a little bit like watching a young child wander around a room and just describe everything they're seeing. It's, <laughs> I it's like, like a candle on a table and I like <laughs> television shows and here's a TV and over here's a sofa. It's a big soft sofa. As rambling as it might be, I don't know. There's something nice about it, the fact that it's like, here's what's going on in the season. Like, like I kind of like the big picturism of, of some of it, uh-huh. <laughs> but as Matt just said, season three, episode 11, Mike Vijar is the director written by Rick Berman and Brandon Braga, which at this point I'm very comfortable in saying I'm not a fan of the episodes that they're in charge of in this way. Original air date was on November 26, 2003. And guest appearances included Leland Orser as the character Loomis. And people will remember Mr. Orser as the waiter in Golden Girls. No, I'm joking. The, the part that this actor is one of those actors that whenever I see him pop up in something, I'm always pleased because he's always, he's always good in whatever he's doing. But the part that always stands out for me is he is the victim in the movie seven who is in the massage parlor. He is trapped in the horrific body device that is, he's then forced to kill the prostitute with this thing. And his performance in that movie was a standout small role. But whenever I see him, I immediately go back to him in that role. And so, yeah. yeah. So I remember him very well in that. This also stars temporal agent Daniels played by Matt Winston and Jeffrey Dean Morgan, 
who people will remember from, well, Supernatural, Watchmen, Walking Dead, and soon to be joining the cast of The Boys in their next season. And Jeffrey Dean Morgan is completely unrecognizable in this because he is wrapped (laughs) in Zindi reptilian skin, which apparently, if the quotes in the information I found online are to be believed, Jeffrey Dean Morgan hated it so badly, he considered leaving acting because he was like, if this is what I got to do to pay my dues, this might be too much. So, jeez. <laughs> oh, and as was previously stated, this episode aired on November 26, 2003, which is the day before Thanksgiving. And I thought, didn't they learn their lesson previously? This episode's viewership was among the lowest of the show. Every time they've broadcast a new episode the night before Thanksgiving, which is notoriously a period of time where people don't watch new television shows, the viewership has been terrible. But what else was going on in the world at this point? Well, Matt, you'll remember you were still singing along to Here Without You by Three Doors Down, a song which I still do not recall how it goes, and I don't care to find out. (laughs) In the movie theaters, people were going to see the cat in the hat with Mike Myers. It made $38 million in its first week. This is a movie that shouldn't really require any explanation from me as to what it is. It is the classic Dr. Seuss story done as a full feature length film. It is currently available on Netflix and we will be talking about it again next week because it held the number one spot for two weeks in a row, making a tidy sum of money. And on television on this date, November 26, 2003. What were people watching? Well, they were not watching Enterprise, unfortunately. They were also not watching, surprisingly, WB's broadcasting of the 2001 film Josie and the Pussycats. They only got 2.9 million viewers. Enterprise got 3.7. Queer Eye for the Straight Guy on NBC got 6 million. That 70s show and A Minute with Stan Hooper both got 6 and 4 million, respectively. Survivor was pulling in the lead with 20 million viewers. And on ABC, My Wife and Kids and It's All Relative had about 9 and 8 million viewers each. And in the news, well, I thought I'd pull out this story from 2001 because in the making of this episode, Scott, Scott Bakula referred to the timeliness of concerns about bioweapons. He referred to the fact that time travel stories can be tricky. I think it's an interesting quote from Bakula given his star turn in Quantum Leap. Mm-hmm. But the, the fandom seems to like them, so they did one, and there was a timely aspect of a bioweapon in the story. And what could he possibly have meant by that? Well, I went back to get some details to refresh my memory about what was going on in 2001, two years earlier than this episode was produced and aired. In 2001, there were anthrax attack across the United States. The 2001 anthrax attacks, also known as Amerithrax, which was the FBI case name for this, occurred in the United States over the course of several weeks, beginning on September 18th, 2001. This is only one week after the September 11th terrorist attacks. Letters containing anthrax spores were mailed to several news media offices and to Democratic Senators Tom Daschle and Patrick Leahy, killing five people and infecting 17 others. According to the FBI, the ensuing investigation became, quote, one of the largest and most complex in the history of law enforcement. 
A major focus in the early years of the investigation was bioweapons expert Stephen Hatfill, who was eventually exonerated. Bruce Edwards Ivins, a scientist at the government's biodefense labs at Fort Detrick in Frederick, Maryland, became a focus in 2005. And in 2007, Evans was put under periodic surveillance by the FBI, and he was being sought as a major target, but he killed himself before the FBI actually announced that he was effectively responsible. There are still questions about whether or not he actually was responsible. It is the FBI has said, yeah, he was the guy. They asked the National Academy of Sciences to take a look at their evidence that led them to that conclusion. The Academy of Sciences said the FBI made some leaps in logic to be able to make that claim. So it has been a contentious uh, issue. It led to federal investigations led largely by Senator Chuck Grassley and Representative Rush Holt, who called for an investigation of the FBI's processing of this investigation. And the fact that nobody was ever put on trial because their lead suspect killed himself, I think lends to the question marks of did they actually get the right person at the time, the letters that were being mailed were clearly being framed to present as if these were tied to the September 11th terror attacks, handwritten notes that were included with the anthrax were making claims that sounded like, Muslim extremism was behind this. So the fact that their main targets of the investigation were both U.S. citizens without any ties to anything having to do with Al-Qaeda or any kind of Muslim extremism meant that those notes were probably a red herring intended to throw off the investigation. So the kinds of things we're seeing in this episode were definitely in the public consciousness at the time. There were also terror attacks in other parts of the world. There was one in Japan, which was effectively a dirty bomb. There are, at this point in the U.S. context, growing concerns about what a bioweapon in a scenario like in a subway or in a mass transit center at an airport might do. And anthrax having been mailed the way it was, and the fact that as something as simple as a powder in an envelope could actually kill five people meant that this was something that people were nervous about. And I myself remember I worked in a office environment where our mail stopped coming into the building. It started going to a vetting area where it was actually undergoing testing before it was brought to us. So this is something that had a real impact on daily life. And so when Bakula says bioweapon concern is something that is in the public consciousness, I don't think he was overstating things. Having said all of that, the context for the episode, the development of a bioweapon, the concerns about that, the ethics behind what a bioweapon might do, all of that largely gets just put on a shelf in the background in the episode. It almost doesn't matter what kind of weapon they're developing. Mm -hmm. The episode focuses largely on the fact that they're in 2003. Yep. I, 
or 2004. Uh, I'm sorry. They yeah, were, they it, were it in the future of even the episode, but it doesn't <laughs> yes. matter ultimately. Yes. doesn't matter. This to me, I'm going to, I'm going to like give my big picture response, Matt, and then I'm going to invite you to do the same. I felt like this was another case of the actors doing a pretty good job with not much to work with. And in particular, the character of Loomis, the actor that we talked about previously, I think that he does. And the actor again, was Leland Orser. I think he does a really, really good job humanizing a character that at the end of the day, you shouldn't be sympathetic for at all because he is willing to kidnap people, take them to an, a faceless, he doesn't know what the goal is of this person. He takes them to this, into this warehouse, leaves them with this person. He's being paid to kidnap these people. And what is ultimately happening is this reptilian Zindi team wants all the different blood types of humanity to be able to research a bioweapon that would effectively kill all humans so they can release this. So Loomis as a character is not somebody we should be sympathetic with. He is willing to do whatever it is to get money in his pocket. He's clearly a smarmy character, but Leland Orsett does a really, really interesting job with him. I was very impressed with his acting in this episode. I'm so split on this because I loved, I loved the acting. Like what the, all the actors, like what Bacala was doing, Blaylock was doing, he was doing with that smarmy character. I really enjoyed all the performances. I thought it was well shot. There were some yeah. good sequences, but where it completely lost me was it felt like Berman and Braga lost again. They lost the thread of why we're watching this show. Yeah. Why should we care? And they, it felt so out of place for this time travel that it, it, it made that the focus yeah. of what we were watching. And it made the focus around this smarmy character willing to basically sell out his species for a buck as the centerpiece of what the, the story was about when it should have been about the ramifications of what a bioweapon means. Yeah. And it's, it, I don't know why they focused on what they focused on. Um, yeah. I don't know why it had to take place in the past. It yeah. made no sense to me. And, and I was also like, wait, earlier in the series, when they, when they were dealing with the Suliban, it was, oh, they can't actually physically travel through time. They can only send messages. Okay, now we're dealing with the Zindi and they can actually send the Zindi back through time. What is going on here? It's like, they never explained that. Never comes up again. If my memory serves me right, never comes up again. It's like, this is like a Terminator situation. Wouldn't they just keep doing this if they can do it already? It's like, yeah. why wouldn't this have been their first? Why wouldn't this have been their first thing that they tried? Right. Like going back and killing baby Hitler. It's like, if you can travel back in time, you could erase the entire human species probably pretty easily in a primitive time period. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Why would you choose 2004 to, and need all the different blood types? There was like, it just, it, it, what? That's not how the genetics feels work. Like you a could bunch create a mutation that would make- Which are, are glued together to create yeah. a, an environment where it, it feels like a simulacrum where it's very story-like. Like it walks around yeah. on the screen, like I'm what a story is. And it actually, if you start pulling it at it at all, it quickly falls apart. The logic of why they're in the past makes zero sense. And the intention at one point, correct me if I'm wrong. It seemed very much like they said the intention was to create the weapon in the past 
and then return it to the future. Which makes no sense. That made no sense. You just release it right there. Yeah. You You just release it right there. And then at the end, the Zindi is literally like scrambling to release it, despite the fact that he's not prepared to release it. He's trying to release it in that moment. And like, wouldn't that always have been your goal? And as you said, if you can go back in time, wouldn't you have already done that as many times as it took in order for it to work? That doesn't make any sense. This is a huge effort by the Zindi to say like, we can wipe out humanity. So they send three, three guys. That's it. Yep. I mean, I know Jeffrey Dean Morgan is like really capable, but not even he on himself (laughs) is going to be able to do, do all of this. And like, this is your, this is your effort to undo an entire species. So you send a total of three people back to do this. And if you could design a bioweapon of that scale, why do you have to go back in the past to do it? You've been on the Enterprise now. The the, the Zindi reptilians have attacked the Enterprise directly and been on board the ship twice. You're telling me they wouldn't have been able to get a hold of what they were looking for for this research in those attempts? Like is, none of this makes sense, but but this, but this is this is where it could have been explained very easily, Sean, of why they went back in time, which is all of humanity is still landlocked to Earth at this point. It'd be very easy to release a bioweapon in the past and ensure that you get everybody. Where in the future we're spread throughout the galaxy, and like it would be harder to track us all down. Sure. So I could understand that as being the explanation for why they'd want to take it, go back in time, and release it there. But they the intention was to bring it back to the future, where it's like yeah. that makes zero sense. And one of my favorite like WTF moments was in that firefight at the end where he's scrambling to release it into the, the fan that yeah. blow it into the air. Yeah. And he, he's by the fan. He's opening it up. He pulls the thing out. He's ready to go. And he sets it down to have a firefight. Right. And he shoots and shoots and shoots. And then he jump, jumps back and then tries to knock it into the fan. And it was like, wait, if all you had to do was drop in the fan, you were literally standing over the fan with the bare device. You, you could were have just there. done it right yeah. then. You had won. And you didn't you even have to wait for the firefight. Yeah. It's like he just decided, it's like, you know what? I'm going to shoot these guys. And he turns around and starts shooting. It's like, <laughs> it made no sense why he was doing that. Yeah. Like there were so many like logical loopholes, this entire premise that it just kind of makes everything fall flat in its face. And it's, it's frustrating because there could have been a really good episode here that would have made all the great acting worthwhile and they just completely squandered it and i felt like there there was an opportunity here for i mean it felt very much like what they were saying was like we need a time travel episode the the fans like the time travel episodes and i'm part of my response is like do we like is that like is the time trap are the time travel episodes the strong one i remember how you and i responded in this rewatch that we're doing to the time travel story where it was the end of, was it the end of season two? Yeah. Or the beginning of season two. I don't recall now, it, it, but there was a major time travel story jump where Archer was trapped in the future. Mm-hmm. And like, no, it didn't work. It wasn't a great, it wasn't a great episode. And like, what were they measuring all of this desire on the audience's part by? I don't understand there have certainly been great time travel stories done in Star Trek, but enterprise at this point hasn't proved that it's one of the ones that can do them. And the times Mm -hmm. that it has done them, uh, 
has been stories like I'm thinking about the episode where it's to Paul's ancestor in the past on earth in the one where it was like they, they were living in a small town. Um, or was that to mm-hmm. Paul herself? I don't recall now. No, it was to Paul recalling to Paul a, a memory right. of an right. ancient relative. Yeah. Like telling a story of a different era about a character is one thing, yeah. but making your characters. And in this episode, the time travel is literally magic. It is. And mm-hmm. that's, and that's unsettling too, for a season that has been up to this point, very based in ethical dilemmas and dealing with some very interesting playing with hard science in very interesting way that we've had some episodes where you and I have both talked about why the hard science in here is really fascinating. They had the episode just last time that we talked where they were in that field of debris that was magnetically attaching itself to the ship and creating this dilemma. Like that had a kind of weight to it, no pun intended, that was fascinating to think about. In this episode, the time travel is literally, they walk through a door and they're magically in the past. They are sent there by their time travel assignment guy. Like, why is he not going back to stop? Yeah, they, they never explain that like, well. It doesn't they make any sense it. that it has to be Archer. And when Archer and Daniels talk, it is full of yada, yada, yada as to why does the future not know about the Zindi attack? Why do they not know what is going on in the Zindi? And Daniels makes the absurd statement. And I loved this. It takes a while for changes in the past to reach us. What? <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. That makes zero sense. He's from a future in which he knows where they are, which means he's from a future that knows of the Zindi attack. There is no, you get to have your cake and eat it too. You can't, yep. you can't play that game. If the past is changing, wherever he is in the future, he wouldn't be able to locate the Enterprise unless he's aware of the context of where they are. So yada, 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 all you want. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And all of that put me into a mood where whatever was happening in the 2004 storyline was already behind an eight ball. Yes. And then the Loomis character is problematic. He is, we're effectively watching somebody who's one step away from being a serial killer. Like he does not think that he's a bad guy. The writing is strong in that regard that he is presented as I've got my reasons. I don't like what I'm doing, but I've got my reasons and I'm, and I'm turning a blind eye to things that might be bad, but because I don't know they're bad, maybe they're not. So I'm giving myself wiggle room morally. That was an interesting aspect of the story. And it demonstrated that they could have done that in a different take on this of the development of a bioweapon and talking to like, there's currently a movie which is going to be coming out soon about Oppenheimer, the developer of the atom bomb. And at the end of his life, Oppenheimer had tremendous guilt of the, over the fact that he had developed this thing. He, Mm -hmm. The moment it was created and then used, he was like, I have fundamentally changed the world in ways that are terrifying to me. And he worked for the rest of his life trying to push for disarmament. Like 
And at the time of the development of the bomb, a lot of the scientists involved in all of that, they had two things pushing them. First, we are at war. So we have to find a way, like we can literally save tens, if not hundreds of thousands of lives of soldiers if we develop a weapon which is strong enough to make the other side say, hold on, we'll stop. So there was that. The other side of it was they all knew that everybody else was also working on this. So there was the, well, I might be doing something bad, but... I'm the Mm -hmm. hero of my story. Therefore it's better if I do this than they do, because if they do it first, that'll be a problem. That story in this scenario could have been fantastic. A Mm bioweapon being developed by a third party. The Zindi have found somebody who is not Zindi, but is willing to do this research based on genetic profiles. They provided by the Zindi has no idea what a human even is just knows looking at DNA, looking at samples of tissue, looking at all this stuff and figuring out how to eradicate this species in a test environment, not about a war. Maybe, maybe this is about an invasive species that's destroying crops. I don't know. I'm being paid well to do this research. Take the Loomis character, make him the scientist, put him in a place where The Enterprise gets word that the Zindi have been in a place. They show up, they find this scientist and somebody to Paul is doing some scans. And she's like, this building is filled with human DNA tissue samples. Why would that be? And they begin to scratch and they find this scientist who's like, look, I don't know what a human even is. I've been asked to do research on this thing and how to destroy it using a bio agent. I'm doing this research for that cause. I've been paid to do it. The ultimate results of all of this are not my cross to bear. That could have been a more interesting story. Well, yes, but they already did that episode. They did. They already did it this season. Yeah. That previous episode with the Zindi where they were building this, the the materials used for the super weapon and they would set a blind eye as to why they were building this material for the Zindi. Yeah. And when he found out what it was, there was that moral dilemma of, do I keep supporting this or not? Um, that basic premise was already explored, so it would make no sense to do it again. <laughs> I think that, I think though, between what we were given and what- Yeah, it would be much better. It would have be been, I would have rather watched an episode and thought, oh, this is like echoes of the previous story, as opposed to, wait, why are the time travelers, why is a time traveler going back 500 years to tell another person you have to time travel back 200 additional years? Like the, the, the illogic of some of these things, Daniels doesn't show up with any reason as to why he's not jumping back with a team to remove the Zindi from 2004. And ultimately to cut to, to cut to, I was just going to say to cut to the chase, the end of the episode doesn't even include any kind of reportage back to Daniels. Like we did it. We stopped them. How are we going to keep them from trying to time travel again? None of that is explained. The only thing we get is a fairly cinematic and ultimately kind of dark comedy of Loomis looking like he was some kind of nefarious kidnapper 
And he's claiming that people with ray guns and lizard people were involved in all of this. So he just sounds like a raving lunatic. And it's kind of funny. And it's kind of like, you can kind of see it coming about 10 minutes toward the end of the episode. You're like, oh, he's going to be unconscious in that car and then he's going to be arrested. So he will pay his comeuppance. That's fine. But ultimately they go back with, they've stopped the Zindi and they go back into the, their normal time. And there's no like Daniel standing there and saying, thank goodness you did that. Here's what we did to stop this from happening again. It, you could skip this well, episode entirely and rewatch and not know that you'd missed anything. Yes, completely. I do want to call it one thing I did like because we've been dumping all over this episode, <laughs> which was I like the milieu that they set up of 2004, the feel of it, the look of it, the way they shot it. And I thought the opening sequences with him kidnapping the people, you know, basically gassing them and like knocking them out and taking them into that room. And you, you as a viewer have no clue as to why we're seeing what we're seeing, what is happening here. And it felt very much like a 1970s crime drama. Um, like, you know, you're watching like something like blowout with John Travolta or something like that. It's like, you're watching a sequence as like, what is happening? I thought was a really good captivating, well-filmed sequence of events. I love the sequence when he came, when he came home, when I love the sequence, when he came home, his phone rang and he was hesitant in answering it. He answers it. He has a brief phone call, but when he walks into his apartment, he grabs himself a beer. He goes into the bathroom where there's a pizza pizza and he gets (laughs) a piece of pizza from the bathroom. Yeah. And it's just like, why does he keep his pizza in the bathroom? How does it start off there? What is he doing in the bathroom that he's taking his pizza in there? I couldn't help but think like, does he put stuff in the bathroom because there's too many rodents and things like that in the kitchen? Like, yeah. Like, cause he put it in a place where he's like, well, they don't get up on the bathroom sink. So I'll put it here. Like, like he's just living this nasty life. And he, in one scene doesn't climb onto his sofa bed the way you would normally climb onto it he steps up onto it and walks across it and then drops onto it it in a way where it almost it almost folds up on him like his butt hits it and the foot came up a bit if he'd hit a little bit harder it might have actually folded over on top of him i thought it was just such an interesting like i would have watched more of him at home (laughs) just as a character because he was doing such a good job in the portrayal of this. And I agree with you. It had a kind of 1970s, like it was visual storytelling. Yeah. Visual storytelling a day in the life of a crook and it, and it worked. It was a little bit like watching like a Dustin Hoffman in a midnight cowboy sort of scenario. It was just like this, things are dirty. Things are, Mm -hmm. he's, he's not on a good path. He's never going to be on a good path. He doesn't even know how to find a good path. He knows it. Like all of that was just really, really on screen. I also liked Bacula, Archer's, and to Paul's first moments on 2004 Earth. Yes. Yes. With trying to figure out what car to steal. And they try like three different cars before they finally find one that they can steal because one is got a good alarm system. One has a dog in it. Like everything that they're doing is they know we have technology with us that is far more advanced than anything that's around us. And yet we're still kind of like, I don't know how to do this thing They're They have to go steal money from an ATM and Archer bones. Like 
people go to jail for this in this timeline. I like, like to Paul's, we'll give back what we don't use. We'll give it back. And, and he's just like, he's just like, we're never, he's like, we're never, we're never giving this money back. <laughs> like they, the, the sequence with Loomis where I actually really liked Loomis's assumption that these were cops and it's all being played again, 1970s cop movie. It's being played like a French connection where these two cops are willing to bend and break the rules. That's what he thinks he's dealing with until they literally start just Archer <laughs> clocks him. But when they're in the car and they go to the fast food restaurant, <laughs> the drive through, <laughs> the drive through is great. That, that I, like I would have taken a story in which Archer and to Paul had accidentally gotten thrown into the past and had to figure out a way back and we're doing this kind of thing where they stumbled onto a penny crook. He's got something they need. And like, like that sequence, that story would have been funny. It would have been, it yeah. would, I would have been willing to follow along in that as opposed to like having the whole Zindi storyline. It really felt like they were like, well, let's have another time travel story we'll pull everything from season one to be able to do that. But we already are partway through season three where they're in the expanse. So we have to kind of like cobble together that into our time travel. Like it didn't work. It just didn't, it just didn't fit. And they've had other episodes this season, which have been standalone. They had the episode where Hoshi was on the planet with the, telepathic mm -hmm. being like that wasn't directly related to the Zindi storyline. It was good. It, yeah, like it, it did a thing. It told a story. It had an arc. It was largely in isolation. It touched on the Zindi in the briefest of way. Basically the Zindi in that case were like the lure of the, the character on that planet where he was like, I'll tell you where the Zindi are. If you stay with me, that entire thing, but you don't need like if your villain of the season is not going to be the reason for the episode, don't shoehorn it in this way. It just doesn't, it just didn't work. I thought Loomis was far more interesting and I felt bad for Jeffrey Dean Morgan, who apparently when they were putting the makeup on him and it was an hours long process, he had the straws up his nose so that the thing could be perfectly fitted to his head. And then he spends the entire episode in shadow. He's, he's yep. only on screen as this Zindi a handful of moments. I'm like, they put this guy through hours for minutes of that for, they could like for minutes worth of screen time, he stands in shadow nefariously saying like, bring me more. I need more by tomorrow. Like you need, he, and that's one last gripe that I had. I need three more by tomorrow. You're a time traveler. It, Sean, Sean. Tomorrow? <laughs> it's, you need it by tomorrow? It's basically beating a dead horse. The yes. whole the whole time travel yeah. thing has so many flaws in the concept. It's not even worth beating it anymore. Yeah. It's it's for, for me, like we talked about in the beginning, this episode is a complete miss, but I am torn because I did like the performances. I liked yeah. the way it was filmed. Yeah. I liked some of the sequences. The the drive-thru was hysterical. It was very Joe Pesci. They screw you at a drive-thru. It was like, yeah. there was like a, there was a personality and character that came through in some of the scenes I absolutely loved. It just didn't gel and it felt out of place for the entire season. Yeah. And it kind of drove home to me that Berman and Braga really 
They were tired. It came across. It's they're tired and they're, they're exhausted tired. and they're yeah. not thinking clearly as to like how to inject new interesting life. They keep going back into the old grab bag and just randomly pulling in old ideas that just don't fit anymore. They don't yeah. work. And yeah. they were on a good path with this season, and yet they still dove into that old bag of tricks and just it just does not fit at all. Strangely, it just occurs to me the same amount of time had passed between Brandon and Braga's first days as a part of the Star Trek universe in next generation mm-hmm. as much time had passed as had passed between the original series and next generation when Roddenberry's hands on the wheel yeah. felt dated and didn't work. Yep. Same amount of time has passed and it feels dated and it doesn't work. It's, it's interesting from that perspective, I think. And like this episode, I think there is a reason to watch this episode I think if you are doing a rewatch and you decide you want to skip this, you're not going to miss anything for the season. But if you are thinking, is there a reason to watch this? I would watch it for Loomis. I would watch it Mm -hmm. for the humor. I would like, you can just kind of like sit back during the whole action sequence at the end. Um, which is strange because it has some of the better choreography of an action sequence. Like what Bakula does, he leaps from one building to another. There's like, pipes falling a lot of this was filmed on location so there are some some locations that are very unique for the for the series where they you can tell they are in a cityscape they're not always on a lot there is one lot scene where there's an escape down a fire escape that lot is one of the most used sets in hollywood and it was actually in the godfather little fun fact so there are reasons to watch this episode it's Really, like, as an episode of the season, I give it a D. But as an episode with the humor and the character of Loomis, I'd give it a solid B. Maybe even a B-plus for the acting. Like, this is, there are things here that I did enjoy. But as the whole, I was just like, this really didn't have a place in the season. So, why is it here? Yep, I agree. So, listeners, we've kind of slapped this one around a bit, kind of like Archer when Loomis was tied and then untied from the chair so that Archer could feel like he wasn't hitting a tied up man. What an honorable guy that Archer is, right? (laughs) How do you guys feel about it? Weigh in through the contact information in the podcast description or jump into the comments below the video. Let us know what you think. Did you like us say, or were you like, no, this is the best episode of the season. You're both idiots. Let us know. Next time we're going to be talking about the episode chosen realm, Matt, any expectations around what that's going to be about? Somebody chooses a realm. I think you're probably on the right path there, (laughs) but before we sign off, Matt, do you have anything you want to remind our listeners about what do you have coming up on your main channel? On Undecided, I'm this. By the time this is out, I will have an episode out about a battery made of sand. Mm. It's fascinating, simple, straightforward, but kind of awesome. Mm. As for me, if you want to check out any information about my books, you can go to my website, seanfarrell.com. You can also go to your local bookstore or public library. They should be able to help you find my books there as well. And keep an eye out for continuing news of a new series of mine that'll be coming out next year. That's going to be in 2023. It'll be summer next year. 
It's a book for kids and families. It's called The Sinister Secrets of Singe. It'll be book one of a new series. And I'm really looking forward to sharing more about that with you as time moves forward. As usual, if you'd like to support the show, you can leave a review on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever it was you found this show. You can go back there and like us, rate us, review us, and you can share us with your friends. And if you'd like to more directly support the show, just go to trekintime.show, click on the become a supporter button, and it allows you to throw some gold pressed latinum our way. We appreciate each and every bruise that we get when you hit us in the head with it. And don't forget, when you do that, you become a cadet, which gives you access to our spinoff podcast, Out of Time. Out of Time is a place where we talk about, well, whatever we want. And you can't stop us. It's our podcast. So there. Sometimes we talk <laughs> about Star Trek. Sometimes we talk about the other shows that are broadcasting, such as Lower Decks, which I've just started. The newest season of Lower Decks is available, and I've been enjoying that show very, very much. It really scratches, in a strange way, a next-generation itch. It's really, it's really well done. So we talk about some of that. Maybe we talk about Strange New Worlds, or maybe we talk about TV shows and movies we're enjoying. Whatever you do to support us, whether it's just listening, sharing us with your friends, or direct support, all of it really does help support the show. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for watching or listening, and we'll talk to you next time.